When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where we take what's happening in the world today and try to give some answers from Holy Scripture and from church tradition and a lot of other stuff too. Thanks for joining. Job really uh, should have been tested for monkeypox, based on the account here. He has uh, severe discomfort. He is inflicted with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He is driven to such madness uh, that he is taking a potsherd, a broken clay pot, and scraping himself with a scrap of pottery. He's itchy, so itchy and discomforted. And he sits among the ashes. And this is the vision of the man who has lost everything. Sitting among the ashes, the burned remains of his house and his kid's house and whatever has burned down around him. And he's itchy. Um, I can't think of a worse state to be in in many ways. He's visibly disfigured when his friends show up, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. uh, They don't recognize him. This is not just how Job is and how Job feels, but it is how we all feel. It is how we all are in our grief and pain and loss and physical discomfort. We are unrecognizable. Um, among with our friends, our usual jovial greeting of, of acknowledgement and friendship and all those other things that go into relationships don't exist in our pain. We're unable to extend the basics of hospitality even. If you've ever gone to the doctor for a skin problem, um, there's some standard ways of treating them. And I remember one of the most profound things my doctor said to me uh, when I went for a skin issue. Um, She said, you know, an itch is really just low-grade pain. And I've been thinking about that, what she said, ever since. And an itch is low-grade pain. That um, it's sort of like a pre-pain and we scratch at it to feel better, and then it ends up hurting, and it feels worse. The pain is almost worse and better than the itch. Um, Such strange sensations we experience in our bodies. Um, And itching is probably one of the strangest of all of them. Um, And yet here Job is, he's itchy. He's scraping his skin, and it's his skin that Satan targets. Chapter 2 begins with these heavenly beings, um, the sons of God, literally. The sons of God show up a number of times in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus, of course, names himself as the Son of God and the Son of Man. But these sons of God are different. They are a different cast of characters. 
The other place that the sons of God show up most famously are in uh, Genesis chapter 6, when it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men and desired uh, to lay with them. And we have these angelic beings that come down to earth and wreak havoc on the earth. And the children born from these unions are, um, are the Nephilim, the giants in the land that are so hard to, to deal with. They incite violence and terror among the people so that eventually God says, I'm going to start over with humanity. And he causes the flood to happen. Noah escapes with his family because God tells him to build an ark. But the ark, Noah's ark story begins with the sons of God leaving their heavenly realm and coming down to earth. The other place the sons of God show up is in the book of Daniel, where um, um, the, um, the term son of man is used to describe an angelic being that shows up in the fiery furnace um, that the three, the three young men are thrown into, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into this fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he says, I see three men and I see a fourth, and the fourth is like the Son of God. Um, strange language to describe these people. But the sons of God are these angelic beings that kind of have their little jobs and things. And in this story, they're, they're kind of neutral. They parade before God. They present themselves before God, before Yahweh. And then the Satan comes along, the accuser. He's often called Ha-Satan, Hebrew. Ha means the, and Satan, or Satan. Um, literally, that's the word. It means accuser, um, someone who um, attacks us verbally, says things about us, whatever it is. Um, we Many people have internalized the, the Ha-Satan, the Satan, um, in that it is that voice of shame and regret and failure that speaks to you and tells you you're no good and you suck and you'll never amount to anything and you've ruined it all and you'll never get any better. And um, those life commandment voices are something that counselors can help us with, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists. Hopefully some of our good friends can do that for us um, to tell us when we're hearing a voice of shame a voice from our childhood that maybe said we were no good, um, said we never amount to much, said we'd never really be approved or loved. Uh, All those voices of insecurity or voices of accusation that come to us are really the voice of the Satan, the accuser. And here this voice speaks in the presence of God. This being, the Satan, um, says... Uh, you know, says what he's been up to. And the Lord says, where have you come from? This is not the intro to Cotton Eye Joe, although it could be. Um, where did you come from? Where did you go? Uh, Satan answers in the same kind of sing-song uh, country music way. He answers from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Satan is clever He is sarcastic. He is good with language. He's the accuser, after all. Have you ever noticed how eloquent you get, or I get, or other people get, when we're mad, when we've got an accusation against somebody, we've got some dirt on them that we want to get out, 
It's amazing how eloquent we become uh, when we are hot under the collar, ready to unload, um, and we have something to say. Um, It's amazing how we become almost like in a courtroom drama with a final scene where the attorney, um, you know, accuses the the convict of the crime that he has laid out in detail of how they could have done it. And there's that great moment. And in real life, there really aren't those moments. Most of our eloquent arguments and accusations fall flat um, because the other party doesn't always acknowledge them to be or acknowledge us to be a faithful accuser. Um, Most of our attempts to um, accuse other people of things are our attempts to bring about reconciliation, to bring closeness, when in fact they turn into uh, things that alienate people even further. Because if you can't agree on the accusation, there's really not much hope in the actual reconciliation. And Satan knows this, so he gives a kind of a dumb answer, but it is the answer of Satan, of the Satan. Walking up and down, going to and fro, This becomes an image of the accuser, sort of the busybody accuser in this case, someone who's always snooping and sneaking and trying to figure out the vulnerable places in people's lives. That's what the Satan is doing with Job. He's going down there and checking out Job, checking out what he's up to and what what happened to his kids and how Job is reacting, always watching but never helping. Um, we We live in a world full of observers, Uh, Our technology has allowed us to observe things that humans have never, ever observed before on a mass scale. Every insult, every slap, every um, even violent incident in our world uh, can be microly digested, scene by scene, frame by frame by all of us. Um, We see this starting in the, the, the Kennedy assassination with that footage from that assassination studied in minute detail over and over and over again. And we've done that ever since with film, that we've things that are caught on film. We, we analyze it, thinking that if we watch it enough, that we'll know something. And there's certainly things we can know by our analysis of film. And there's also things we can never know, um, things we'll never be able to find out. Because just as Video gives us a world of a vision of the world, of other people's experiences of the world. Um, we never really get inside their heads. And that is really what we're trying to do. What was going on inside that person's head when they did what we see on the screen? And yet we live in a time where uh, we can observe but do nothing. We can observe war atrocities and war crimes in real time. And yet we can do nothing about them. This is the age of the Satan, the age of the accuser, the age of the, of the, the observer that doesn't help at all. And that is ultimately what Satan is, says he does. I walk around, I go to and fro, I walk up and down. Um, and then the Lord says, I mean, this is kind of shady. The Lord brings up Job. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth, an upright man who fears God. And then Satan says to him, which this is kind of weird. Um, this is kind of weird because last time I checked, um, Satan and the Lord have already had this conversation in verse 6 of chapter 1. 
The heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came to them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down it. Have you considered my servant Job? Wait, we just had this conversation in chapter 1. Now we have it again, but it's like they're having it for the first time. Which, either this is a literary device, which it very much is. Um, this is a story, and we tell stories like, Once upon a time there was a king who lived in a castle. And, and, but there's also another thing that's happening here, in that the tragedies that befall us, the stuff that happens to us, happens on such a high level. If there is any meaning to it, it happens in a realm that we can never know about. It happens in a realm of this heavenly assembly that we have not been given access to. We have not been invited to. And so it exists in this world that we have no ability to know about. And so the, the world of the, the, the interactions of this world are deeply personal in that Satan and the Lord are having this conversation. And then it's deeply impersonal that they're having the same conversation nearly word for word, again, like they've never had it before. Um, maybe the author of Job is trying to tell us something about human tragedy, that you can never, ever really figure it out. Our minds are meaning-making factories. We will make a meaning out of anything. And I can prove this easily, because if I do certain things in this Zoom meeting, if I turn my camera off suddenly or I say something to you or give you feedback about how you read something or how you said something, like you'll make a meaning out of that. And it may be the meaning that I intended. It also may be some other completely different meaning um, that I did not intend or didn't mean. We are always making meaning out of the things that we're experiencing. Human beings do that. We do it all the time. And especially when something really bad happens to us, we say, why did this happen to me? And we immediately will latch onto something to tell us why, so that we can feel like the world makes sense. When someone dies, when someone dies suddenly, when we lose money or we lose something or something breaks, um, we always try to find a meaning. And Job, the author of Job is kind of saying in this early part that whatever meaning you're making out of this is probably... It probably happened at such a level that you can never really know about it. Um, I don't think Job is necessarily saying, or the author is saying, this is how every tragedy works. What it's saying is it happens in such a mysterious way that the meaning we make of our sufferings and our sorrows are probably not accurate at all, especially the ones we make right away, especially right after the disaster happens. If we try to make a meaning out of it too soon, will always miss the real deep spiritual meaning of that event. Skin for skin, the Satan says. All that people have, they will give to save their lives. This is one of the most cynical statements of all of biblical texts. And the Satan says it. He knows people. He's been walking to and fro on the earth. He's gone up and down. He's seen people in their houses. He's seen them in their castles. He's seen them in their pyramids. He's seen them out on the prairie. He's watched them over and over again. He's watched us. And he knows that people will do terrible and dreadful things to save their own skin. That they will betray people just to save their own skin. They will sell each other out. They'll 
bargain and barter and do all sorts of things that they would said they would never do just to save their own skin. And so the Satan says, touch his flesh. Stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he'll curse you to your face. And Satan's kind of right about this. Most of us, yeah, when something really gets under our skin, on us, that disfigures us, shames us, shows the rest of the world that we're not all right, that we are not blessed by God, that we, we've done something terrible, uh, most of us will do anything to escape that stigma, to escape that pain, to escape that. And Job is in a place where he cannot escape. Satan knows a lot about humans, but God trusts Job through all this. God trusts Job. We talk a lot about trusting God in Christianity, how we need to trust God. We don't talk a lot about how much God trusts us. God trusts Job, and he says, go ahead, do your worst to him. Just don't kill him. Spare his life. And so God does, and there we find Job scraping his wounds with a potsherd. His friends don't recognize him. They come up and they do really the best thing that anyone can do in a time of grief. They go comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. So they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. They sat Shiva for him, as they say. Shiva, seven, the number of seven, seven days. Um, They sat with him in silence. This is hard to do. Um, What if we did this more for each other in our loss, in our grief? Um, Some of the best pastoral care I've ever gotten are people that just listen, don't have a solution, don't have a way to fix it. And you guys do that in this group a lot. When someone shares something really, really rough and really difficult, um, I'm thankful that you guys don't usually jump in with a quick fix or a solution or I'll solve your problem for you. Um, You know, that is an act of love, to be silent, to put ashes on our head too, to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, to rejoice with those who rejoice. So that they know we're not, they're not alone. And for people to do that for us, too. Um, there's a classic video, I think, on YouTube where there's two people, a couple, I guess, and one of them has a... It's, it's obviously fake. Um, it's stage makeup. But they have a giant nail stuck in their head, okay? Just sticking right into their head. And they're sitting on a couch with their loved one or partner or whoever it is. And, and, and uh, they say, you know... Um, I have this nail in my head. I have this nail in my head. And the the other person says, oh, yeah, you have that nail in your head. They said, yeah, I've got this nail in the head. It hurts really bad. Oh, yes, you have that nail in your head. Yes. And they just listen and do that reflective listening to the point where it becomes absurd. It's like at some point we've got to address the nail. I don't need you to solve this problem. I need you to just listen to me. Um, But the the comedy of that scene underlies the actual reality that for the most part, that's what we really want. We want someone to treat us like a grown-up in our grief, to not treat us like a child where they try to micromanage us or give us solutions. 
um, but really to be with us, to acknowledge that we have tried a lot of different things and they haven't worked. And here we are in this pain. And that's what Job's friends do. So after this, we're going to trash Job's friends. We're going to critique them and give them pointers and all these other things. But at this point, they're kind of doing it right. And um, I know when you console each other and you console the people that you care for, um, when you go to them and help them in their grief, um, you'll probably get the first part right. This part, the silence, the listening, the shared misery. Um, It's usually later that we do things that end up moving away from people in their grief. But Job's friends do it right. Um, Ultimately, this suffering is a mystery for Job. And it is his skin that bears it. Um, And in this time, and I joked about Job needing uh, to see someone about monkeypox, but um, when you see videos shared of people with skin disorders and people are saying, is that monkeypox? Do they have it? Can I get it? Um, you can see how quickly stigmatized skin issues are, um, not just from a racial standpoint, the differences of our skin tones, but ultimately of skin diseases and disorders are some of the most um, stigma-inducing problems that we face as human beings. And so Job is experiencing it. Job cries out numerous times in this book, there's nobody in the heavens that listen to me. God doesn't know what I'm going through. And so I think about Jesus when he walked on this earth. Uh, One of the main groups of people that he healed were lepers. And they had a skin disease. Ultimately, the leprosy of Jesus' day was a skin disease. Um, And it was very visible and very obvious and very stigmatizing. And Jesus touched lepers, which means he could have gotten it too. Um, Jesus wasn't afraid of the stigma of skin diseases um, that were so stigmatizing and so ostracizing and removed people from community. Jesus wasn't afraid of that. Um, and this means doesn't mean to not be cautious when it comes to medical science, but that rush to stigmatize, that rush to shame that we can even see in this monkeypox outbreak um, is one of our um, moments where Christians need to remind each other that we're Christians first. We're not going to stigmatize people from what we see on their bodies. We're going to try to get them help, care for them, and be with them, um, because ultimately, this is what Job experienced, and this is what Jesus experienced too. Amen. About William Porcher DuBose, and... Um, some of the good things he did and also some of the really terrible things he did. Um, and one of the things I didn't mention about him that I probably should have, and if you just Google him in the Episcopal Church, you'll know. But um, one of his major problems that we have with him today and having him on the calendar um, is that after the Civil War, he wrote um, a number of things in support of the KKK, in support of um, segregation, in support of or against Reconstruction in the South. So it was those writings really that um, cause current uh, Episcopalians um, to say perhaps um, 
it is his behavior after the Civil War, not necessarily what he did during the war or before the war, um, but really after and his attitudes towards racial reconciliation that um, is the issue for him. But um, because of that, uh, Great Cloud of Witnesses included Artemisia Bowden. Artemisia Bowden um, died in 1969, and it doesn't say the year of her birth, but um, one of the missionary bishops to West Texas, far West Texas, was the Right Reverend James Steptoe Johnston. Um, he lived from 1888 to 1916. I think that was years of his episcopacy. But he desired to provide education and skill development for newly emancipated blacks in the mission field. Um, as you know, the, the Emancipation Proclamation that reached Texas um, in Juneteenth and all across the South created a major um, celebration, but also a crisis for communities, both black and white communities, of, of how we should live now. What do we do? How do we live? What are our justice systems? What are, how do we earn a living? How do we take care of these crops? And some really unjust um, practices developed out of that time period of sharecropping and other things. But um, it was during this time that, that churches, including the Episcopal Church, began to really focus on education for com communities of color. Um, and this bishop, Bishop Johnston, desired to provide education and skill development for these folks that had recently been freed. Philip Johnston traveled to Raleigh, North Carolina in search of a young uh, teacher, young black teacher. In 1902, Miss Artemisia Bowden courageously accepted Bishop Johnston's invitation and assumed leadership of the St. Philip's Vocational Day School for Colored Children in San Antonio. Um, you know, very clear what, um, what uh, that mission was about. St. Philip, of course, is the evangelist and deacon who uh, preaches the good news of Jesus in the book of Isaiah to the Ethiopian eunuch. So St. Philip is associated with um, the ministry to people of color to black people, um, and I guess that's why they picked him. Um, she was born, she, she began the school with less than 10 students after leaving the school for about 52 years. They say the 50, first 52 years of leading a school are the hardest. Um, this small day school transformed into a fully accredited junior college offering over 100 degrees and certificate programs. In 2016, St. Philip's College had an enrollment of over 11,000 students. St. Philip's College today carries a dual designation of being a historically black college and a Hispanic serving institution. Um, and Bowdoin's work, which began more than 110 years ago, continues to be an essential piece of the educational system in South Texas. Her participation in various social causes, including the Texas Commission on Interracial Relations, the Negro Business and Professional Women's Club, the City Federation of Clubs, the Southern Conference of Christians and Jews, the Coordination Council of Juvenile Delinquency, in the Texas Social Welfare Association, the American Friends Service Commission, the Texas TB Association of Behar County, 
and the National Association of College, of College Women's Clubs. Um, so she was involved in all those groups. <laughs> Pretty amazing um, uh, involvement in those civic groups that did a lot of good in their time and still do. Her visionary leadership at St. Philip's as well as in the community earned her honorary degrees and recognition as one of 10 outstanding women in the field of education by the National Council of Negro Women in 1946. Um, she was honored as Zeta Phi, Cap, Zeta Phi Beta, Women's, uh, Women of the Year 1955. She died in 1969 after a full and rich life of faith in Christ and fidelity to Christ Church, having served both the school and St. Philip's Church in the Diocese of West Texas for more than 67 years. One of the fun things about our Diocese of Texas annual conference is that every year we make a resolution to send greetings to the Diocese of West Texas, and we always remind them that we were the sending organization for their mission to found the Diocese of West Texas. And they always remind us in their resolution that, um, you know, they left us far behind and surpassed us in uh, missional ministry in their place and time. So it's a fun little um, diocesan rivalry between us, but really a shared love and beauty and joy for being able to be part of each other's um, origins and work in the world. Oh God, by your Holy Spirit, you give gifts to your people so that they might faithfully serve your church and the world. We give you praise for the gifts of perseverance, teaching, and wisdom made manifest in your servant, Artemisia Bowden, who you called far from home for the sake of educating the daughters and granddaughters of former slaves in Texas. We thank you for blessing and prospering her life's work, and we pray that following her example, we may be ever mindful of the call to serve where you send us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. <laughs>